Today's reading is from Luke 18. Jesus was telling his disciples a parable about their need to pray continuously and not be discouraged. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him asking, give me justice in this case against my adversary. For a while, he refused, refused, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God or respect people. But I will give this widow justice because she keeps bothering me. Otherwise, there will be no end to her coming here and embarrassing me. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Won't God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he be slow to sleep? Sorry, will he be slow to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice quickly. But when the human one comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? This is the word of God. God, we just thank you as um, Justin comes and gives the word today. God, I thank you that um, he is an extension of your hand. God, I thank you that um, eyes and ears will be open to hearing new things by your word. Amen. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City, and it's good to see um, a lot of uh, old faces and new faces alike. Um, Over these last six weeks, since the beginning of the year, we've been in a series called Learning to Live, uh, in which we've been learning to live as Jesus would if he were in our place. Um, It's what we're called to as Christians. And so last week we talked about how to live a full life, or to be more precise, how to live a fulfilled life, to live life to the fullest, that which Jesus said he came to bring to us, to all of us. Um, That which, to be honest, can seem like a particularly daunting challenge in the midst of life as it is, in the world as it is, and our relationships as they are. Last week we talked about how we inhabit a God-filled reality, which means that we inhabit a grace-filled reality. A reality in which love is the foundation of our existence because every single one of us is made in the image of a God who is love. And how, we, how, how love is the foundation of all existence because the same God who is love created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Last week we talked about our part, we talked about our role, how we fit in, where we fit in, how we participate with God in whatever ways we can to see restoration and healing and wholeness and justice and grace and love triumph. That is to see God's kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And specifically, we talked about soul training practices. We talked about spiritual disciplines, holy, holy habits. These are the things that we can do to position ourselves and align ourselves uh, so that as much as possible, we are working with God and not against God or in spite of God. Uh, today, we're going to talk about prayer. Prayer, one of the, the key practices of faith. Uh, it should not surprise you, I hope, to know that Jesus prayed. Uh, It was one of the things that the gospel writer Luke points out over and over and over again. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed after he was baptized. Jesus prayed in deserted places. Jesus prayed in the mountains. He prayed on his own. He prayed in front of his disciples. In fact, he prayed the night before he chose his disciples. Jesus prayed all the time. But what is prayer? It's one of those things that everyone has a slightly different understanding of, a slightly different definition of slightly different way of practicing or not practicing. It's one of those things that church folks can take for granted as if everyone should just know what prayer is. But I don't want to just assume, first of all, that we're all church folks in here. And second of all, I don't want to just assume that everyone knows or agrees on what prayer is. 
Occasionally in the Gospels, we get to see Jesus pray out loud in front of his disciples. So there we get to, to see what he prays. But I wonder, I wonder what he prayed when he was on his own. Was it a set form of prayer? Was it the Lord's prayer? It was his prayer? So he was just like, this is my prayer. I prayed this all the time, every single time. Was that what he prayed? Was it making requests of God? Was it speaking out loud? Was it, you know, Jesus was just speaking his prayers out loud all night. And if so, how do we understand Paul's instruction in 1 Thessalonians to pray continually, pray without ceasing? Because that's a, a lot of nonstop talking out loud. Or was it silent meditation? Was it contemplation and centering, breath prayer? Was it all of the above? Here's how the late Mary Oliver wrote poetically about prayer. She said, it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention and then patch a few words together. And don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. When we look at the picture of prayer as it's painted throughout the pages of Scripture, we see that prayer is talking with God and listening to God. It is making requests for ourselves and for others, and it is receiving a word. It's receiving an image, a response, a command even sometimes. Prayer in the Bible is practiced in stillness and in shouting. Prayer, you see, is our connection to God. And there are a multitude of, of different ways to stay connected, both communication and communion. Let me give an example. Um, this is a, a picture of my mom. Um, with Daniel last summer uh, when she got to meet him for the first time. And every couple of weeks, I will FaceTime with my mom, uh, who lives in Hong Kong, usually so that she can see Daniel live in action and not just in pictures and, and videos. And sometimes my dad will hop on the call as well. But my mom and I will talk, we'll, we'll share news, we'll share what's happened since we last spoke and what's going on now. We'll, sometimes we'll talk about the news and, and kind of what we think about it. We'll share prayer requests and if there are ways we can help, whether tangibly across the distance even, or just being a conversation partner. Uh, I might ask her to send me some uh, candy or um, some ointment that, that used to just be available in Hong Kong and is probably no longer just available in Hong Kong, but is certainly cheaper when shipped at the mom rate. <laughs> Sometimes we communicate by text, uh, by iMessage. Uh, sometimes my mom will switch it up and use WhatsApp. Uh, I have no clue what her criteria is for whether she uses WhatsApp <laughs> or iMessage. Sometimes we'll email, occasionally a line or two, uh, other times longer. Uh, my wife, Carolyn, tries to make sure I still send an actual card for Mother's Day, but I confess I do often forget. And then once every year and a half, couple years or so, we'll actually get to be together in person. We'll get to see each other face to face. And we get to go out and shopping or running errands or eating food together. Or sometimes we'll just sit at home and, and chat or read or play cards or eat food together because you can never get enough of eating food together. Sometimes just being in each other's company is enough. You see what I'm getting at? Prayer is, it can take all sorts of different forms, shapes and sizes, but at its core it's about relationship with God. It's about cultivating that relationship through connection. Prayer is how we stay rooted in God, in God's truth, in God's hope, in God's love. And so let me ask you this. If prayer 
truly is the connection and the sustaining power of a relationship with God, how connected are you? How connected are you? Or maybe the question is instead, maybe we need to start here. To what are you most connected? To what are you most connected? Um, most smartphones now have this ability to, to track how much time you spend on your mobile devices and even your laptops. It's a depressing read sometimes. Uh, my iPhone tells me how many times I pick it up every day. It's a lot. One recent study says that the average American picks up their phone 50 to 60 times a day. Like just picking it up, not actually necessarily doing anything with it, just like that was another one. Uh, confession time, my average for the last week uh, when I checked it on Friday was 76 times a day, which is, you know, it's five times per hour that I'm awake. Now, I could make excuses about how I use my phone for, I mean, I use it for work, you know. I don't, uh, I don't do an office job that I, like I used to where I would just put it in the drawer and kind of forget about it for the rest of the day. Um, I need my phone. I use my phone often. Uh, but the reality is I know that I go to my phone too often. You know, uh, waiting at a red light in traffic and just pick it up, nothing, nobody, nobody's, nope. <laughs> just one of those. Waiting in line, nope. I get home, crash on the couch, check my phone. And this may be TMI for, for many of you, but, but even going to the bathroom sometimes, it's just <laughs> instinctive for me to just bring my phone with me. Best time to catch up on the news. I'm, I'm so glad I'm not alone. And I know I'm not alone. You just, uh, y'all are like holding in your nods because you're like, I don't want the person next to me to judge me. But what if, what if I, what if we, turn to God in prayer as instinctively and as naturally as we reach for our phones? Or, or whatever it is that we lean on or numb out to or distract ourselves with. It might be as, as seemingly mundane as, as a, a sarcastic comment. We, that's the thing that we lean on. That's the thing that we go to. Cracking a joke to divert attention. Maybe it's, it's uh, food or online shopping or trash TV or sleep or sex or alcohol. Whatever it is that we, that we just turn to, that we just lean on. Now listen, I get, the, I get the yearning to escape. I get it. To get away from all the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and the overwhelming feelings in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and in our world. I get it. I get it. But if we want to live full and fulfilled lives, and I don't think I'm off in thinking that for, for many of us, maybe for all of us, we all long for something more. And if we can't live those full and fulfilled lives without God, though many have tried, because in fact God is the source and holder of that life, that eternal life, timeless life, and if prayer is our connection to that God and therefore to that life, well, no wonder Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Right? He's saying stay connected to the source of light and life and love all the time. All the time. Prayer is connection to the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's a relationship that is available to us every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. We don't have to wait until we're here at Minor on Sunday morning. We don't have to wait until we're gathered together for our small groups in the middle of the week. We don't have to wait until whatever time it is that you set aside in the morning or the evening. You don't have to wait for that time to connect with God. 
God is with you right now and all the time. This is what the monk Thomas Merton wrote. He said, we may think of prayer as thoughts or feelings expressed in words, but this is only one expression. Prayer is the opening of mind and heart, our whole being to God. The ultimate mystery. Beyond thoughts, words, and emotions, through grace, we open our awareness to God, whom we know by faith is within us, closer than breathing, closer than breathing, closer than the air we breathe, closer than thinking, closer than choosing, closer than consciousness itself. Prayer is connection to the Almighty, to the great mystery, to the creator of the heavens and the earth. Prayer is connection to our Heavenly Father. In the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the prayer we prayed together earlier that we pray every week, the Lord's Prayer, we begin with our Father in Heaven. Now a prayer that uh, began with our Father in Heaven, that wasn't uncommon in Jewish tradition. But what was peculiar about Jesus' prayer was that at least in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 11, Jesus doesn't use that longer honorary title of our Father in Heaven. He simply says, Father. In Aramaic, the language he would have spoken, it would be Abba. Now, you may have heard some equate this with the term daddy, but our, our language is, is, is insufficient, so insufficient for talking about God. And there isn't really a word in English that adequately captures the fullness of that Aramaic word, Abba. Now, since I already talked about my mom, it's only fair that I also talk about my dad. Here's my dad. Uh, when I'm talking to my dad, I don't address him as Professor Fung or Dr. Fung, though some do. He's just dad. That's our relationship. That's the level of our intimacy. That's how we relate. He's my dad who, who loves me and cracks corny jokes and takes forever when it's his turn and we're playing cards and he's just taking so long, <laughs> just examining. And when we question why he's taking so long, he'll just pause and he'll say, strategy. <laughs> And then he usually wins, so there's <laughs> something to that. He's one of the smartest, wisest, most gracious people I know. A respected New Testament scholar, a published author, faithful husband for more than 50 years. And so there's a level of respect and honor that, that I, 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 in the way that I interact with him. Um, and that respect and honor, it doesn't take away from the intimacy. It doesn't diminish the intimacy. It actually augments it because I know more about him. And in the same way, only on a scale far more amazing and far more infinite in calling God Father, Abba, and inviting us to do the same, Jesus opens up the door for us to enter into that same intimacy and connection with the God of the universe, an intimacy and connection that none had ever known before Jesus. People in Jesus' day knew God as the Holy One, the Lord of the heavenly hosts, high and unreachable, unapproachable, untouchable, and yet Jesus says, come join me in talking with my Father and your Father, in being with my Father and your Father. Come meet the one who is great and holy, who is unapproachable in so many ways, and yet who is also loving and intimate and who desires to be involved in your life and for you to be involved in God's life. This is where prayer has to start. It has to start in understanding that it is a relational connection with the God who is love, the God who loves us, the God who loves all. Without that, nothing else makes sense. 
Without that relationship encapsulating and encompassing everything else, we might be tempted to think that we're dealing with a, a divine vending machine or a cosmic Santa or a frustratingly unreliable genie or a distant and disinterested deity. Historian Ken, Ken Bailey notes that in several countries in the Middle East today, Abba is still the first word that a young child learns. There's something basic, elementary, primal, natural about that word Abba. What if we turned to and leaned on and relied on that connection, that relationship, that person, as instinctively and habitually as we do all of the things that don't really sustain us or give us life? There were a number of passages that I thought about using uh, in talking about prayer, but God led me to Luke 18, and so that's where we are. Let's take a look. Verse 1, Jesus was telling the disciples a parable about their need to pray continuously and not to be discouraged. I love that first verse because it's so real. I mean, there, there are differences between us and Jesus' disciples of, over time and culture and race and uh, circumstance. But this is not one of them. Jesus was telling them a parable about their need to pray continuously and not to be discouraged. Anybody ever felt discouraged? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone ever felt discouraged in prayer? Anyone ever considered giving up or actually given up on God or on prayer? This is for us. This is for you. Verse 2, Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge. Now, I don't want you to think of this as a, a modern-day judge who simply decides how the law should be applied. Judges in those days were tasked with the administration of justice in the sense of restoring order, in the sense of making things right, in the sense of pursuing wholeness. And yet this judge neither feared God nor respected people. In other words, this judge wasn't particularly motivated to make things right, had no reason to, to pursue order but in that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him, asking, Give me justice in this case against my adversary. In the patriarchal society of that day, women were often defined by the male head of the household to which they belonged. They depended on, were reliant on, the social and relational and vocational power that men held in those days. And a widow then was one without a man to vouch for her or defend her or care for her or speak for her or protect her, and she likely would not have had independent means to earn a living. And so widows were among the most vulnerable in that society, along with orphans, immigrants, and, and poor people. They were the ones who didn't have much social standing and often didn't have anyone to advocate for them. So there was, it was easy to ignore them. It was easy to take advantage of them. It was easy to scapegoat them. And some things haven't changed. And yet this widow is who Jesus casts as the hero of his story. For those of us who know what Jesus is like, this should not be a surprise. Jesus is always turning the unjust systems and structures of the world upside down. Jesus is always picking apart our skewed myths and stereotypes, always breaking open our projections and prejudices, always reminding us of who matters in spite of how we tend to treat them. Jesus is the ultimate judge in that old, old understanding of it, the one who is making all things right. And I wonder if, if the disciples understood that at this point in, in their time with him, or if they just wondered how this story could end any differently than you know, the judge who 
It has all the power and has no reason to budge denying the widow's case. Because the widow, you know, she has no one to support her cause, and she likely has no money with which to bribe the judge. It's a hopeless situation. It's a helpless situation. Except when Jesus is involved. Verse 4, For a while the judge refused, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God or respect people, but I will give this widow justice because she keeps bothering me. Otherwise, there will be no end to her coming here and embarrassing me. See, what had happened was, the judge, who was not swayed by appeals to conscience, by honor or shame, by what other people think, is essentially, get this, the judge is essentially, essentially irritated to the point of granting the widow justice. Irritated to the point of granting the widow justice. Because she keeps bothering me. The translation for embarrassing me is actually an idiom, uh, giving me a black eye or hitting me in the face. Verse 3, we're told she kept on coming. She kept on coming. Hey, judge, it's me again. Hey, judge, it's me again. Over and 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 over. The judge is worn down by the widow's persistence. Verse 6, the Lord Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Won't God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he be slow to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice quickly. But when the human one or the son of man comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? Now, it isn't as clear in this passage as it is in other places in the Gospels, but Jesus is drawing a contrast not saying that God is an unjust judge. Jesus is drawing a contrast. In Luke 11, after he teaches the disciples how to pray, he says, which father or which parent among you would give a snake to your child if they asked for a fish? Or if they asked for an egg, which of you would give them a scorpion? Well, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In other words, how much more will God, who is so much more loving than we are, how much more will that God respond to you whom he loves? In Luke 18, Jesus is saying that if, if even, even a so-called uh, powerless widow can achieve justice from an unjust and callous judge by her persistence, how much more will God, our Heavenly Father, grant justice and restoration to those who are his own, his own people, his own children? When I read the, the parable of the widow who persisted for justice, I think of three people on this, uh, this last Sunday of Black History Month. First, I think of Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was a minister and philosopher, author of the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, who posed a, a searing question that, that, that shifted my own paradigm of faith many years ago. And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, what does the gospel have to say to those whose backs are against the wall? What's the good news to those whose backs are against the wall? To the disinherited, to those in need, to the vulnerable, to the marginalized, to the taken advantage of. What is good news to them, and, and, and why has Christianity in this country so often failed them? Why have Christians in this country often been so desperate to seek power and control that they have found themselves actually in the place of the unjust judge? Claiming God with their words, but showing no fear in their actions toward the proverbial widows of our day. It's a question that haunts the way I do ministry and life every day in this country. 
How am I presenting Christ to those in need? Second, when I read about the persistent widow, I think of Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer was the daughter of a sharecropper. She was a civil rights activist. She tried three times to pass the literacy test that was required to be registered as a voter in the state of Mississippi. Hurdle number one. She said to the registrar, she said, you'll see me every day, every 30 days until I pass. She kept coming back. She passed the literacy te uh, test on her third attempt only to discover that being registered to vote wasn't enough to vote in the state of Mississippi. She had to provide two poll tax receipts. A poll tax was essentially a fee that was charged to make voting harder for black folk, most of whom at the, at the time were poor and couldn't afford to pay the tax. But she persisted. She overcame every obstacle that white supremacy tried to put in the way she worked to achieve racial and economic justice for all African Americans. It was Fannie Lou Hamer who famously said, all my life I've been sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. In 1964, she was invited to speak before a national audience and give her testimony of being beaten and assaulted by white police officers in Mississippi on her way to a pro-citizenship conference. <laughs> A conference for being more invested and involved in the, good, in, in the common good for our country. So she was invited to speak at the, in, in, in this setting, and, and the powers that be, including President Lyndon B. Johnson, were so terrified of the nation hearing her words, hearing her testimony, that the president actually called an impromptu press conference at the White House to get her off of the air. Timed it just for when she was about to get, get on, get, get, sit down at the table in front of the microphone. But what happened was instead that the news stations played her testimony in full that evening, giving her more coverage than she otherwise would have received. And just 12 months later, that same president signed the Voting Rights Act into law. And finally, I think of Martin Luther King Jr., who persisted for justice. King counted uh, Howard Thurman as one of his mentors, actually. King became such a thorn in the flesh, such a, a prick to the conscience of our nation and our elected leaders, working together with so many others, including Fannie Lou Hamer, in the face of so much discouragement and so much persecution and so many threats of violence, to see the, the beloved community to become a reality, to see the, 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 the idolatrous mountains of racism laid low and the dangerous valleys of segregation cleansed by the light of day, to see every human being treated as the image bearer of God that they are, and especially those in need, those who were vulnerable, those who were often scapegoated, those who were taken advantage of. And for King, obviously, that, that involved black men and women, but it also included the poor. See, it was for the poor that he was in Memphis in April of 1968, for sanitation workers striking for better safety standards and a decent wage, because King understood that social justice and racial justice and economic justice are all intertwined. They're all connected. And that the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven means all of those things for all of our world. And so King persisted for justice, for things to be made right. And on the night of April 3rd, 1968, King addressed some of those striking sanitation workers at Bishop Charles Mason Temple. He spoke more than he knew. I may not get there with you. The next day he was assassinated. But over the course of his life, he persisted. He was faithful. I just want to do God's will, he said. 
Two weeks ago, we talked about love as one of the measures of maturity, of how human we are, of how much like God we are. Last week, I highlighted again that love is the foundation and the standard, that it is in loving God and loving one another in tangible action, not just with our lips, that we experience the fullness of life. And today, in considering the practice of prayer, we're highlighting the widow's persistence in prayer for justice. Because as Cornell West puts it, justice is what love looks like in public. Because in prayer, we connect with the one who is love and who therefore is also just. And in that connection, we're changed and challenged by God ever and always more and more, growing in the likeness of Christ. Jesus says, how much more than the unjust judge will our loving God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to them day and night? He will. He will give them justice, and quickly. But when the human one comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? When Jesus comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? Faithfulness in action, faithfulness in persistence, faithfulness in prayer for justice. Because we may not reach the promised land in this life. We will not see the full restoration and redemption of all creation until Christ comes again. But we're invited to go there. We're invited to journey together. You know, as I was reflecting on the widow's persistence for justice and on why, why was she so persistent? I landed on this. She had nothing to lose. She was desperate. There's a place for desperation in the spiritual life. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, I love what uh, writer Anne Lamott says in her book on prayer. It's called Help, Thanks, Wow. Three prayers, three basic prayers. She says, prayer is taking a chance that against all odds in past history, we are loved and chosen and do not have to get it together before we show up. The opposite, in fact, may be true. We may not be able to get it together until after we show up in such miserable shape. Our willingness to make space for God to move in the world and in our lives is directly proportional to our desperation for God. Now, let me be clear. What I'm not saying is that you just have to want it more or that if you don't get what you're praying for, then you don't have enough faith. What I mean is that when I look back on the times in my life when I was most aware of God or felt most close to God or most needed to see God's power tangibly, it was usually when I was broken and helpless and hurting after a, a bad breakup or when I had heart problems for no reason or when my college best friend was dying of cancer or when I realized I have absolutely no control over a particular person or situation in my life. Desperation leads to honest prayer. Desperation softens our hearts so that we can actually hear from God and be moved by God and be changed by God and be used by God. So how desperate are you for the kingdom of God to come on earth as in heaven? Because that's what we're asking for when we persist in prayer for justice. It's for all things to be made right. The kingdom of God is God's rule and reign in every life, in every sphere of life. So God's rule is the new way of living that God brings about and makes possible in every person's life. And God's reign is that realm where God is in charge, where what God wants to happen actually happens, where God's will is done. 
It's personal, it's social, and it's systemic. God's kingdom is about all-encompassing transformation. God-filled, Jesus-shaped, spirit-empowered transformation. It's justice. It's all things made right. You know, sometimes I think that we've undersold the wonder of the kingdom, that we've, um, we've set our sights so small that we've lost the sense of mystery in our faith, that we've cut the transformational power of God, uh, the glory of God and His gospel down to self-help, self-help, hocus-pocus, so that we can make our lives as comfortable as we can without feeling guilty about it and then sprinkle some God into it to make us feel better. And I confess it's been the case in my life more often than I'd like. And so for the ways, whatever ways and whatever times that I have failed to embody the fullness and the beauty and the wonder of God's kingdom and God's reality and God's love and God's life, I'm sorry. Here's the other thing. Our desperation for God is is directly proportional to our understanding of the reality of the condition of our lives and of our world and of the complete inability we have to improve any of it apart from the power of God. See, I think that sometimes part of the challenge of praying for God's kingdom to come, for justice, for things to be made right, is that we we don't know what it actually looks like, or, or maybe we haven't taken the time to reflect on what it could look like, because I think if we did, we'd be so captivated by what God wants to do. And we'd be so cognizant of our absolute inability to make any of that happen that our desperation quotient would be off the charts. And so let me start in Revelation 21. I want to invite you to close your eyes and just listen. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There will be no more school shootings or church shootings or mosque shootings or synagogue shootings or mall shootings or theater shootings. There will be no more gun violence in our neighborhoods or bombs dropped on our brothers and sisters around the world. There will be no more kids losing their lives before they had a chance to grow up. There will be no unwanted babies. There will be no more death. There will be no more refugees without homes. There will be no more xenophobia or racism or fear-based politics. There will be no more kids waiting for families. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more bodies ravaged by cancer. There will be no more lives lost to the school, the prison pipeline, or mass incarceration. There will be no more marriages falling apart. There will be no more broken homes. There will be no more crying. There will be no more addiction. There will be no more poverty. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I want that reality here on earth as in heaven. 
When we pray for God's kingdom to come, for things to be made right, we're asking for corruption and rot to be rooted out of our halls of government, for the poor and sick to be cared for, for the homeless to be housed, for our schools to be places where kids can grow and learn in safety, for marriages and families to be restored, and for every single person to have a place to call home. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're also asking for our own souls to be transformed so that the sin and selfishness in our own lives and the ways we lash out at others and hurt other people and our own addictions and our own destructive habits and our own distracted half-lives, that all of that might pass away and we might increasingly take on the likeness and the shape and the character of Christ. When we pray for the kingdom of, come, of God to come, we're asking for our daily bread. We're asking that God will provide not what we want, but what we need. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're asking for our sins to be forgiven just as we forgive those who sin against us. We're asking for the things we owe to be forgiven just as we forgive what was owed to us. We're asking for grudges to be dropped and for scores to no longer need to be settled. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that when we face times of trial or temptation, whether that's losing a loved one or, or losing a job or not knowing how you're going to break an addiction or not knowing where your next rent check is going to come from or whether you're ever going to get married or whether your marriage is ever going to get better or whether you'll ever be reconciled to your kids, we're praying that we wouldn't fall away, that we wouldn't get discouraged, that the Son of Man will find faithfulness when He returns. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're asking for God's grace and love and beauty and goodness to be found in every life and every sphere of life. That's what I want to see more of. And I don't know about you, but I can't do any of that on my own. I need God to do that in me and through me and around me. And thanks be to God, that's exactly what God wants to do in me by the power of His Spirit living in me. That's exactly what God wants to do in us by the power of God's Spirit living in us. Conversation with God and encounter with God. Talking with God and doing things with God. Asking of God for our lives and aligning our lives with what God asks of us. Abiding in God. Staying connected with God. That's prayer. That's what we pray for. That's why we pray. My heart is so full for what I believe God wants for us, for who God wants you individually and us as a community to become, for how God wants us to be changed so that we might be a blessing to those around us. I want us, Christ City Church, I want us to be a church that prays. Not, not so we can you know, wear it as a badge of honor and you know, we can stick it on our Yelp page as a reason why you should come be a part of our church. We pray more than them. No, that's not why. Prayer so that we can see the reality of things as they are in each of our lives and in our city and in our world and so that we can catch a glimpse of God's vision and God's heart. And because we have caught a glimpse of God's vision and God's heart and God's yearning for each of our lives and for our city and for our world and because we acknowledge in absolute desperation our absolute inability to make any of that come to pass without God. In the coming weeks, if your small group is participating in learning to live, you'll have your prayer experience, which will be a time to pray on your own and with your group, a time to, well, you'll carve out time to pray and to experiment in prayer. And I hope you're able to participate, and I hope you encounter God in 
a new way in that time. But whether you're able to participate in the learning to live prayer experience or not, I hope that every one of us is able to experience the possibilities of prayer as the blazing and undeniable and life-giving connection with the one who loves you. And to close today, I want to invite us to practice prayer together. Um, to practice cultivating that connection with God together. Uh, on your seat, you should have an index card and a pen or around you. I want you to grab hold of that. And we're going to start with a practice called centering prayer, or breath prayer. It's just a way of stabilizing ourselves and reminding ourselves that we're in the presence of God. And so to start, I want to invite you to close your eyes and uh, so sit, up, sit up straight and get comfortable. Be aware of your posture. I want to invite you to close your eyes. Let's take some deep breaths. Deep breath in and out through your mouth. Another deep breath in and out through your mouth. Remembering that God is closer to us than our breathing. God is closer to us than our thinking. God is closer to us than our feeling. God is closer to us than our choosing. God is closer to us than our consciousness. We are in the presence of God. We're always in the presence of God. We just forget. Now when you're ready, I invite you to open your eyes. On your index card, I want you to sort of split it into two sides. You can split one side of the card into two and draw a line down the middle, or you can just write on either side of the card. But on one side, I want you to write a petition, something for yourself, some way you want to see justice, some way you want to see things made right, the kingdom come in your life. Could be something you're dealing with, something you need to forgive, something you need to repent of, some relationship that feels out of your control, some situation in your life that you don't know how to deal with, handle. If you're struggling to find the words, that's okay. Paul says the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness and intercedes for us, and if we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans beyond understanding. And on the other side of the card, I want you to write an intercession, something for someone else, or some situation outside of you. Some way you want to see justice, things made right, the kingdom come in someone else's life 
or in our city or in our world. And again, if you can't find the words, that's okay. God knows. What I want to invite you to do is to take that card, take that home with you, and put it somewhere where you will see it the moment you wake up. And every day this week, just try those three practices. Just take 30 seconds to a minute, a couple minutes, just remembering that God is with you, that God goes before you, God is all around you, and that you can... Talk to your Heavenly Father, the one who loves you, who wants what's best for you. And you can lift up things beyond yourself because we're not made to live un, uh, just unto ourselves. I want to invite the band to come up. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. We do this practice every week because it's a way of reminding ourselves of what is central to our life and our faith, the sacrifice of Jesus, the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, through whom things become possible that weren't before.